0: Greetings, alpha seekers. Welcome to Nugent Capital. Uh, you know the sequel, basically, because we we threw in the towel, but uh, then we changed our mind and we got back on the air because turns out, uh, in terms of listenership analytics, you have to be patient. Uh, and I'm not talking about a lot of people, but you know, I'd like to count ears. Instead of people, you know, because that's 2x. So, turns out I had more years uh, than I thought. Share of, uh... of head, you know, attention, time spent. Turned out to be better than I thought, you know, because I thought it was like zero. So you can't fall off the floor, which I fi- frequently find myself saying. Which is kind of Nelson Mandela-esque. He said it doesn't matter how many times you fall, it just matters that you keep getting up one more time. And it worked out for them. So I think that is that's my new mantra. Uh, so anyway, today I hopped on because I'm trying to do thematic rather than like, you know, a potpourri of pointless observations. I'm just gonna have one overarching theme. That's based on some free advice I got. So today's theme is uh, interest rates and inflation and that sort of thing. So uh, on CNBC today, I watch CNBC still, and when I do the podcast, that means you don't have to. Uh, although I'd recommend it. You know, you can do both, because I don't see everything. Uh, Jack Alvin was on, or Ablin, is it? I think it's Alvin, actually. I think I spelled it wrong. But uh, he used to be at BMO, and now he started his own thing, I guess, called Crescent, C-R-E-S-S-E-T, Capital. And he was talking about uh, the 10-year treasury rate that is implied by something called the copper-gold ratio. And he didn't talk about what that meant, but I can imagine. You know, gold's going down and copper's going up. You know, that would indicate normally that, you know, people don't have real high e- inflation expectations compared to copper, which is Dr. Copper in the market, which is the lead indicator of uh, of what the economy is going to do. Because as copper gets bought, that means houses are being built and you're also seeing lumber prices being twice what they were you know which means there's a lot of home construction because a lot of people are trying to buy houses outside of cities for obvious reasons so um what he's saying is that if you take that copper gold ratio it implies a 10 year which should be 2.7% and it's 1.7% now so um uh, What that tells you is that you'll probably see that 10-year Treasury rate go up to 2%. Uh, I mean, if if it wasn't for the Fed's interference and distortion of that Treasury market, for obvious reasons, because they don't want uh, interest rates to go up, they want to pour gasoline on the fire here, uh, which Yellen is doing over a Treasury with the stimulus. Uh, so they're going to intervene at some point and they won't let it get to where it ought to be. We don't have a free market in interest rates anymore and we have not for some time. Uh, it's called financial, uh, suppression. So tech stocks are responding badly to that, mostly the ones that are responding badly, or the ones that are responding the worst the ones that have no sales, uh, you know, uh, to speak of. Their PEs, you know, you can't even do a PE because they lose money, so they're, they're valued at like 30 times sales, but even tech that's profitable, like a Facebook or Google or whatever, if you look at the valuations it's like 30 times trailing earnings. And what that implies is a huge growth potential. And so far, that's been a pretty fair bet. But Google and Facebook in particular are facing some severe bipartisan uh, regulatory headwinds. So that is not good. And I think uh, when you look at the other peers in that space like Apple and Amazon not so much um, Jeff Bezos is a darling of, of the liberals and so is Tim Cook and they're not in the business of tracking your uh, your your surfs or your surfing of the web and that privacy issue has gotten to be a big big deal with all the Russian manipulation of of elections and all that good stuff. Uh, so, anyway, what he's saying is, and this is the bizarre, and this is the real powerful point here. Uh, this is really the headline which I buried, which is bad journalism. But you know, I major in advertising, so uh, sold out early. So, uh, what he's saying is that if interest rates go up one percent, which arguably they could, then the the trailing pe ratio basically goes from 30 to 20 on these stocks so in other words it's multiple compression as opposed to multiple expansion which means the stocks theoretically could go down until that you know until the math works out to where the price is only 20 times the trailing pe versus 30 times and that implies, based on my math, like a 33% drop. And you are seeing these stocks drop like, you know, 2 or 3% a day since the peak. And the other part of that is the tech stocks are, to some extent, not all of them, but let's say the, the really vulnerable ones are the ones like Zoom that were, uh, that were pandemic plays. And now that we see the light at the end of the tunnel, which hopefully is not an oncoming train, and I don't think it is, I think we are going to see a return to normalcy, you know, probably, Joe says, July 4th. And I don't disagree with that, but certainly by September, I think you're going to see the schools open and people are going to be pressured to go back to the office and all that good stuff. So, uh, you know, Disneyland's going to open and, you know, the world as we knew it may at least in fits and starts, start to uh, have a renaissance. And so these work-at-home stocks may be taking a real dive. So stay away from those. I'd unload them, and if I didn't unload them, if I owned them, I'd, I'd buy protection on them or sell some, you know, sell covered calls. You could sell covered calls all the way down. And the volatility will get higher, the implied volatility, so that covered call will get a nice juicier premium as it continues to fall. If you want to, if you want to, for some reason, hold them because you don't want to pay the cap gains or whatever. Um, so essentially, what Jack is saying is these stocks would need to grow by fifty percent at least, grow their earnings, in order to keep the prices stable. Well, that's not going to happen. So. Uh, the rotation play here is the healthcare and to finance. And you can see the banks are going up like 2 or 3% a day. Because for whatever reason, which I've never been able to understand, frankly, the higher the rates are, the higher their uh, margin is on loans. I don't know why. So I'm a banker by uh, DNA, but I never went into the business because the our name kind of became mud in that sector. <laughs> so... One thing, one of the things I decided not to do was be a banker, and uh, at least not the First National Bank, and uh, so, which is now gone. So anyway, traditional banking, you know, mainstream, Goldman Sachs, uh, Morgan Stanley, uh, JP Morgan, Jamie Dimon, the Einstein of banking, I heard him called yesterday in spite of his recent AAA, which was an abdominal aortic aneurysm, I think. That wasn't good. But he's a durable guy. And uh, so that, like that, Wells Fargo, which their name was Mud, but, you know, people have short memories. So that's where you go. And then healthcare, because a lot of the healthcare stocks are going to be showing up with gains because while you would think healthcare would have benefited by the pandemic, they didn't. Because a lot of them shut down, a lot of discretionary procedures were delayed. Horizon uh, Therapeutics uh, had to shut down a really great drug they've got, an, um, an ophthalmic drug, because the production line was appropriated for COVID vaccines. You know, so there's a lot of pent-up demand for that stuff. And it's going to start exploding once you get on the other side of the pandemic. The other thing that's interesting is these hospitals, you know, it seems like they've cut back on medical residencies. So I read a thing today, if I understood it correctly, that some MDs may have to go through like PA training programs to get their clinical experience, which is, you know, bizarre. It's like a PhD, you know, getting a a teaching assistant role in a high school. So anyway, is what it is, though. So in other words, the costs for some of these health systems on the medical side are going to be lower because they've substituted NPs and PAs for physicians, which cuts their cost about 50%. And PAs and MPs tend to do what they're told, unlike those pesky physicians who are like herding cats. So, um, now the other thing that came up here after that, that Steve Leisman and Rick Santelli, goods and materials costs are rising twice as fast. And as a result, companies are going to pass that on. So you're going to see price inflation. Now, the question is, is it temporary or permanent? And the argument is that prices will stay high. The firm is the firms that raise prices are not going to have to do what we would refer to as take-backs, in other words, price cuts. But lumber and crude oil, and crude goes into a lot of things that are not necessarily, you know, global warming. Uh, like, they make plastics out of crude oil. So... I'm sure there's some pollution from that, but, you know, plastics are still kind of in the the old, uh, the graduate mode, you know, one word plastics. I mean, we use a lot of plastic, so, uh, which has also got some green issues, but the reality of it is we still use a lot of plastic, so uh, that causes inflation. Price of oil's up back, I think, around 70 bucks a barrel, from they were paying you $38 to take it off their hands. So that's like a $100 price increase a barrel if you look at that. That was a weird futures market phenomenon, but uh, we went from being a washing oil to now, you know, the Arabs and the Russians for the moment have decided to slow down the, the drills. So, you know, they're creating a, a, a shortage, which is what cartels do. So, uh, this could be, though, a one-time price rise. And one time, according to Leasman, and Santelli and Leasman go back and forth about it, I think Leasman's actually got this one right. When you readjust price levels, you know, on a one-time basis, that's not the same as inflation. Inflation is a wage price spiral. So, if you've got a temporary increase in materials and you raise your prices on houses, for example, and then you leave the prices there, that's not the same as if the carpenters and the tradesmen are all demanding a 10% wage increase every year, and then it just keeps... It's the the other side of compound interest. If you have compound inflation, that's different than a one-time price level adjustment. And they may keep their prices up there, which makes them more profitable if the materials cost goes down. Or, you know, it's supply and demand. Again, if you just let the market work, it'll it'll solve all these, you know, pricing and scarcity issues. It's when you start to tamper with the market that you get, you know, the wrong solution. Because like I said in one of my newsletters, my first newsletter actually in this new Nugent Ventures mode on Substack, you know, people want a free lunch and then they get it and they're surprised nobody wants to take their order. Because, you know, if you go to the restaurant and say I want a free lunch, they'll say, well, I got to pay to get the burger and the bun. and So I'm going to lose money if I, you know, and I can't make it up on volume when I lose on every burger. So guess what? We got no burgers for you. Well, wait a minute, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren passed a, a bill mandating free lunches. Well, you know, get it from them and see if they start a restaurant now. So that's how that works, and that's why when you start to regulate prices and wages and everything else, you end up with, you know, a law that says, oh, yeah, you, you should make 200000 a year, but you shouldn't have to pay for anything. And yet, you can't find a job for two hundred thousand. Nobody wants to to give away your house, so you just don't have anything. That's my that's my uh, vision of how socialism doesn't work. Now you know I could be wrong, but uh, so anyway. On that note, the other thing is I've noticed. You know, I have been a Bitcoin skeptic. I have been a crypto skeptic. You know, it's one of those things like these. Uh, NFTs, which I mentioned the other day, stands for non-fungible token, but also stands in medicine for not a feckin' thing, as the Irish say, as a placebo. But um, I got into an engagement on uh, Seeking Alpha with some Bitcoin buffs. And, you know, the key here is, my point, the biggest risk I've seen on this is that... All the central banks in the uh, OECD countries, which are basically the, quote, Western advanced countries, Organization for Economic and Community Development is what OECD stands for. It's like 22 or 23 countries that, you know, you wouldn't mind taking a trip to, basically. Like Japan's in there, right? So uh, they it seems to me, kind of like the exorbitant privilege of being the only... They have a monopoly on fiat currency, right? Which gives them a lot of power. Because they can buy weapons, so they have military power, and they can pay soldiers with money they just basically create out of thin air. Well, it's good to be the fiat currency issuer. I wish I could do that, but I can't. So, Bitcoin essentially allowed somebody, this mysterious Sotomayor whatever to do that and I don't think that you know your sovereign entities like that too much your Federal Reserve and Bank of England and uh, European Central Bank so my real bear, bear case against it is they could just with the stroke of a pen prohibit anybody who wants to access the banking system from holding Bitcoin. And then that's it, right? So it becomes basically a, 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 a outlawed currency. But here's what occurred to me, is that if as long as it's a commodity and not a currency, then it's no different than these uh, non-fungible tokens, NFTs. It's no different than gold. It's no different than a house, it's an asset, okay? Now, the downside of that, and this has just recently emerged, is that when you sell your Bitcoin, let's say, really, it's a barter at that point. I give you Bitcoin, you give me some NFT that's worth $69 million. I guess they use Ether, but doesn't matter. So that is a asset trade, the way I view it, so if I'm valuing my Bitcoin at $69 million dollars or my Ether the same as this asset to me that's an offset, okay? I don't see that as a as a capital gain. I see that as an asset trade. Like if I trade my house for your house and they're of equal value, then I don't know that that's a taxable gain. Capital gains tax. It's just an asset swap, so we'll see if that's the way the IRS determines it, and such. And it's also perhaps not even a reportable thing. It's not like they're going to issue, you know, a W two on a ten ninety nine or whatever it is. So, uh, but let's just say that I buy I bought Bitcoin for a dollar, and now I sell it for fifty thousand dollars. Well, that's a huge capital gain. And if it's a short-term capital gain, which it wouldn't be at that rate, but it's not too long ago, this thing was trading for like $800, and now it's 50 So if I go to the store, and they take Bitcoin, and I buy myself $50,000 worth of pretzels, that's a taxable event, unless I say, well, you know, I just traded asset for asset. I don't know. But there is the risk that that's a taxable gain, um, you know, particularly if you just convert it to cash, in my mind. But let's say I have $50,000 and I, you know, pay them out or whatever I do, then, or I convert them to pesos or whatever, or even if I convert them to Bitcoin, they're not going to go back and say, well, the dollar was worth a $100. The The dollar index was 120 when you got that dollar, and then when you sold it in equivalent, it was, the dollar index was at 90, so you get to take a, a capital loss on, on your currency. They don't view currency as an asset, so thus it's not subject to any tax. So that's one big difference, is that you know a Bitcoin, an asset, could be considered subject to capital gains tax, which is a big difference. Unless you can dodge it, as I just outlined. Now, on the other hand, if indeed it's a commodity like any other commodity, like a a barrel of oil or a uh, house or a pizza, you know, furniture, whatever, asset artwork, if they are going to declare that financial institutions or private citizens or whatever can't hold assets... That's a whole different deal. <clears throat> now, they did do that in the 30s. They they made it illegal for citizens to hold gold, unless it was like jewelry. So there were exceptions. But you couldn't just hold like gold coins. And they went out and made you turn them all in and gave you the newly deflated dollars in return at a fixed exchange rate. So that was basically it was compensated confiscation, but it was still comp, compens, confiscation. Could they do that with Bitcoin? Maybe. But if you do that and a lot of financial institutions and such hold it, then that's a tough that's a bigger leap. So I think that argues to some extent for a more bullish case for Bitcoin. The other thing is I've noticed that while it ran up really big there for a while, it's kind of achieved a stable level. I mean, the dollar's moved around, like, the way I interpret this statistic, like 18% in the last couple of years. So, you know, that level of volatility means that if Bitcoin moves plus or minus 10%, or plus or minus $10,000, that's really in the same 18% or so volatility level as the as the dollar. Now, the dollar doesn't move fast. That volatility is over a long period of time. Bitcoin can go up or down 20% in five minutes. So it's still more volatile, but it's not like, you know, you bought it for $800 and it goes up to 51000 And when something goes up that fast, that big, it always says to me it could go down just as fast and just as much, so if you're going to lose you know ninety percent ninety five percent of your your currency value, if you view it as a currency, that's not something I want to be in. but if it continues to remain in a trading range that's like plus or minus twenty percent, that makes it a lot easier to be involved with for me at least so um. If it can maintain its commodity status from an IRS and regulatory point of view, I think its chances of survival in the face of potential uh, sovereign state uh, annihilation are a lot better than if it starts to be treated as a currency. So in a sense, the more stable it gets, the more danger there is that they will classify it as a currency and then make it illegal. So, that's something not simple to think about, but something to think about. Now, I will be better able to hold forth on this particular subject once I read this book I got, which you, if you're interested in, may want to pick up a copy of. Uh, It's by a professor named Nick Bhatia, B-H-A-T-I-A, And the title is Layered Money, From Gold and Dollars to Bitcoin and Central Bank Digital Currencies. And this was recommended to me by some of the people I was uh, debating the topic with on Seeking Alpha. So, And these people sounded like they knew what they were talking about. And this guy sounds like he knows what he's talking about. So I'm going to read that. And there's also a website called LayeredMoney.com. L A Y. E-R-E-D-M-O-N-E-Y Dot com So Check that out if you want to Do a deep dive into it If you don't I will be reviewing it I think Certainly on the podcast But perhaps in writing It's a lot easier to talk than write I'll tell you that So um, And I say that as a writer So Look forward to that If you find it something to look forward to Belated happy St. Patrick's Day, and live long, prosper, Uh, stay safe, and hopefully we'll talk to you again sometime soon. Bye-bye.